This week in KMA Land, Page County Supervisors extend solar project moratorium. Pottawatomie County voters keep status quo on supervisors' districts. Peterson sworn in as Mills County Auditor. CRHC dedicates new infusion center. More progress in SMC Cancer Center's construction. And we'll look back on 100 years of the Sydney Rodeo. I'm Mike Peterson. Commercial solar energy construction permits are still on hold in Page County. Meeting in regular session Thursday morning, the county's Board of Supervisors unanimously approved extending a 180-day moratorium on the siting, construction, and operation of commercial solar energy systems. The board initially placed the hold back in February. However, as the county plans to begin drafting a solar ordinance, Supervisors Chair Jacob Holmes says the moratorium should be in place to prevent any confusion on the rules developers must follow. We need to get this done, but our... I think I looked up and somewhere around August 14th is when our other one runs out. So we're a week from that. So put this on here. We do not have to go that long. We should be done before then. Holmes says County Attorney Carl Songson drafted the resolution to extend the moratorium. Preliminary discussions began in October 21. The board revisited potential solar regulations at its meeting last week when Holmes presented an ordinance from Madison County. At that meeting, Holmes says there were a few similarities between that ordinance and other county ordinances. Some of the biggest areas right off the bat would be just your setbacks, of course. It's a big one. We could talk about that, first of all. Feeder lined up. A lot of these ordinances I've read have plant trees around them. So they don't have block noise and vision with neighbors and stuff. There's things like that. In other business, during board communication, Holmes also provided an update from a jail committee meeting Wednesday. He says three sets of blueprints were introduced, and they plan to see an updated layout later this month. Everybody was here, and they kind of guided it down to the one that fit the best, the situation the best, and shrunk some things. So they're going to put that together and then bring that back again to look at. So we'll have something to look at, I think, and... I think it's two weeks. Two weeks. They're trying to keep it moving, have some numbers put to it, some dollar amounts. The board also approved the use of the courthouse grounds for Sunrisers Popcorn for September 30th during the Southwest Iowa Band Jamboree and the semi-annual report for publication from County Treasurer Angie Dow. Pottawatomie County is maintaining the status quo on county supervisory elections. Unofficial results from a special election in Pottawatomie County Tuesday show nearly 64% of voters casting ballots preferred keeping Plan 1 in place, which includes at-large voting for all five supervisor seats. Another option on the ballot included having supervisors reside in certain districts with at-large voting, which received over 6% of the vote. Meanwhile, 29% of voters preferred a plan requiring residents in each district to vote for their own supervisor. Supervisor Jeff Jorgensen has been vocal about his support of leaving Plan 1 in place, believing that divvying up the county into districts would cause unnecessary division. We do not need uh, a division in this county uh, to, get, uh, to get things done for the county. Uh, I, I think it's just an effort uh, by, uh, by those organizations to get their hand-picked candidates elected to the board in the past. They've tried to get hand-picked candidates elected to the board, and they, they, they couldn't get it done because those positions, that their positions 
on issues just do not appeal to the county at large. Representatives with Western Iowa Labor Federation and concerned citizens for Pottawatomie County submitted a petition earlier this year with nearly 4,000 signatures putting the special election process in motion. Jennifer Pellant is president of the Western Iowa Labor Foundation, one of the groups that had also been advocating for Plan 3. In a recent interview with KMA News, Pellant says they hope to get more perspectives on the county board. Four out of five supervisors live in like a 15-mile stretch right on the east side of Council Bluffs. And for a county that's, you know, 45 miles wide, it's the second largest county in the state by area, it's the 10th largest by population. We just don't think that we're getting the diversity of perspectives on the county um, board that, that we need. More than 12% of the registered voters, or more than 8,100 individuals, cast ballots in the special election. The changing of the guard took place in the Mills County Auditor's Office this week. Amy Peterson was sworn in as Mills County Auditor during the County Board of Supervisors' regular meeting Tuesday morning. Peterson was appointed by the board earlier this month to succeed Carol Robertson, who announced her retirement as County Auditor in June. Born and raised in Pisgah in Harrison County, Peterson graduated from West Harrison High School before attending Iowa State University. Before her work in Mills County, Peterson spent several years with Lozier in Omaha working in data processing and floor auditing before owning and operating a dance studio in Glenwood for more than 20 years. Most recently, Peterson spent over a year as a clerk in the Mills County Auditor's Office. While Robertson observed whether she should fit into the Auditor's Office for the past year, Peterson says she has greatly enjoyed the people who work in and with the county. They want the best for the people that live in it. And everybody seems to be where they, they really are wanting to follow the rules. It's like, you know, we just, this is what it says with the code. We want to make sure we stick with it. We want to do our best for them. Trying to keep budgets down, realizing it's not always a possibility to do that. Everything is going up and we still need to have, you know, the roads. We still need to have the, the public health. We still need to have the people that are out there doing the job. Peterson adds Robertson also involved her with her fiscal year's budget presentations, noting it was a challenging year of trying to find additional cost savings within the various departments. However, as prices increase, Peterson says she will still face the challenge of balancing cost savings and quality services for county residents. We're foreseeing the next year or two, it's going to be probably a little bit more of a, a cut back on what we are able to do, but we're hoping we're able to do it without diminishing any of the quality that the people are getting for the county and to do it without hurting the workers. Over the next year, Peterson says one of her objectives is to help digitalize and streamline the paperwork in her office. We have a lot of dual things that are happening just because of the comfort level of where people you know, are at on working with the, with the systems. We're bringing in document locator, which is something Carol brought, um, got ordered like in April, and we're still waiting for it to get in here. Some of the other offices already have it, which will allow us to not only, it it doesn't just scan the product in, but it sorts it for various types of sorting so people can all locate it at different ways the information that they're wanting at their fingertips. Peterson succeeds Robertson, who has been the auditor for 24 years and worked in the office for more than three decades. She says Robertson has been invaluable in preparing for the new position. She's gone above and beyond any time, day or night. If I've had a question, she's a quick response back, you know, if she's not right here with us side by side and and um, gotten me. So I've got auditors across the state to reach out to that um, 
also have a wealth of knowledge, you know, different counties, so some things are, of course, different. But the support system is really great that I've, you know, she's allowed me to become a part of and be comfortable with. Peterson will serve the remainder of Robertson's term, which ends December 31st, 2024, and must run for re-election that year if she wishes to continue in the position. Monday was Robertson's last day as auditor. Clarinda Regional Health Center is meeting the needs of infusion patients with a new facility. CRHC officials held a community open house Wednesday evening for its new infusion center located on the backside of the hospital. The new center, which will provide several hematology and oncology services, houses five new infusion bays, two exam rooms, and a treatment room, along with its own entrance from a parking lot behind the facility and plenty of natural light. CRHC CEO Chuck Nordyke tells KMA News they're excited to open the center and provide a more secluded area for patients. We already had the idea of segregating out a waiting area that's private and kind of um, off to the side. But um, knowing how busy the hospital has become in the front parking lot, how large it has become, we wanted to do something different so that it made it a little bit easier for these patients to come in. Um, this, this area, which was meant for storage, just it became just a natural place for it. The new center provides an area for cancer treatments, including chemotherapy and immunotherapy, along with antibiotics, injection therapy treatments, and infusion treatments for Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, and post transcripts. Sarah Lockman is a hematology and oncology physician assistant at CRHC. Lockman says it's great to have a dedicated space for patients who are often in treatment for hours. As a provider, I'm most excited that this space is for our patients. You know, this is dedicated to them. All they have to do is let us take care of them and they can focus on getting better. Additionally, Dr. Devin Webster, based out of Portland, Oregon, is available via video chat and will visit quarterly. Stacy Pulliam is Director of Specialty Infusion and Surgery at the hospital. Pulliam says she's most excited about the new infusion bays that put the patient at the center of decision-making. When we started this project was to create a warm, um, open environment where you felt comfortable, um, you felt serenity, you felt peace when you walked through the door and hope. And um, I think we've achieved that. Um, we put the patient at the center of the decisions with the nice chairs and remembered the family member that um, sits for hours with the patient as they get care with a recliner. The infusion center is also part of a larger expansion and construction effort to the hospital, including a new sports medicine and rehabilitation facility. Other major construction efforts have been completed. Nordyke says renovations to office space and an updated boardroom continue. Nordyke also appreciates the community's continued support as they expand and improve their services. Portions of Shenandoah Medical Center's multi-billion dollar cancer center are now up and running. But SMC CEO Matt Sell says it'll be early December before a grand opening and ribbon-cutting celebration takes place on the hospital's $13 million Robert S. Holmes Family Cancer Center. Sells says SMC recently held a soft opening for the center's radiation therapy section, which includes a new linear accelerator. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program, Sells says a number of patients being treated at the center has increased since the new section opened. There's several types of radiation therapy as far as care plans and approaches that we weren't able to do on our old machine. And so if we felt that individuals, if our radiation oncologists thought that the individuals needed certain types of treatment, they would typically refer those patients on to Omaha 
uh, in order order to do that. Now we're able to keep those patients local. So you know the the reception from our our old patient population has been super positive. Obviously with that, Sal says patients are also proud of the new facilities. We've had several that have wanted to show their loved ones that bring them you know to the appointments. Can it would it be okay if I, I brought them back so they I could show them what the machine and everything looks like back here? And so we've done several tours that way too. And so. Everybody's been very impressed. Obviously, for us, it's a tremendous step forward. Construction continues on the center's other sections, including a new clinic space and an oncology-specific rehabilitation area. Renovations are also planned for the hospital's inpatient nurses station. We really felt we needed to kind of bring that area into the 21st century, and so construction has continued there, and we actually should be open in that area within the next couple of weeks, which is pretty exciting. Florida school officials are planning a second bond issue referendum later this fall. In the latest in a series of work sessions with representatives of SiteLogic, the district's facilities consultants, the Clarenda School Board Monday discussed plans for an $11 million bond issue vote in the November citywide and school board elections. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Tuesday morning, Clarenda School Superintendent Jeff Privia says the proposed $11 million bond issue covers some of the projects included in a $14 million bond issue rejected by voters last March. That'll include our HVAC system that is in poor shape that we really got to uh, fix up. And it's going to include our CTE buildings, our science and facts rooms, upgrades, media center renovation, parking lots, and bus drop-off loop at our elementary, elementary secure entrances and renovations there, and an auditorium addition and renovation. Priview says some of the elements of the previous bond issue were removed from this proposal based on public input from the series of listening sessions held following the March vote. We took out our early childhood that we would really like to put in for our preschool. That is going to have to wait. And some renovations at the elementary in the 1956 building were quite costly because of asbestos and getting rid of those kind of things from the past. No bus barn and we're not going to do anything with the administration building. In addition to community open houses at both the elementary and 712 facilities, Privia says the district plans to send mailers out to the district's patrons explaining the bond issue. Additionally, Privia says the board is moving forward with separate renovation projects at Clarinda's 712 complex involving six new classrooms and heating and air conditioning work. Right now, we are hoping to get bid for those projects in late October, early November, and break ground, we're hoping, February or March, so we can start those projects right away and get as much done this coming summer as possible. Funding for the district's Secure and Advanced Vision for Education or Save Dollars will cover the project. Thousands of spectators from all over the Midwest traveled to Sydney this week to enjoy one of KMA Land's summer traditions, the Sydney Championship Rodeo. Each rodeo has its special memories, but this year's rodeo achieves a major milestone, the 100th anniversary. To mark the occasion, a Sydney woman is updating a publication detailing the event's first half decade. Jan Tackett is writing an addition to the first book, covering the rodeo's second 50 years from 1974 to today. The first book came out in 1973 for the first 50 years. So I'm picking up starting in 1974 through 2023 for the second part of the 50 years. And like other local residents, Tackett is proud of the rodeo's heritage. Actually, the rodeo's history dates back to a time before it even existed. 
Prior to 1923, Tackett says the community's big celebration involved other activities. For 35 years, they had Chautauquas where they would have guest speakers, uh, balloon ascensions, all kinds of vendors and those kinds of things. Well, after 35 years, they decided that that was getting a little boring, so they wanted to jazz it up a little bit. And they found the Tackett brothers, Earl Tackett and Henry Tackett, who were from Wyoming, that were cowboys. Tackett says the first rodeo was held in a venue very different from its present surroundings. Where the actual arena is today used to be the baseball field for the town. And so they put a rope around to make like an arena with cars the old Model T's, and they rode saddle bronc horses. With the rodeo's success, Sydney's American Legion Post assumed sponsorship. Organizers then decided a bigger arena was needed for the event. The first bleachers actually only held about, oh, maybe 500 people. And so as this rodeo through the years had grown and all these people came because this was their vacation, they decided, well, we better build on to this. By the mid to late 1930s, that arena was twice as big as it is today and would hold over 20,000 people. In the mid-1960s, the arena was renovated and reduced to its present capacity. Back in 1964, when they built the new football field. They didn't need that big arena anymore, so they started to shrink it. The arena now sits around 8,000 people, so it has regressed in the size. As the Sydney Rodeo grew in stature, the biggest names in the nation's rodeo circuit found their way to the small Fremont County community. The list of competitors over the years read like a who's who of rodeo history. Larry Mahan, Casey Tibbs, Jim Shoulders, Monty Henson, Olin Young, and Freckles Brown, just to name a few. You don't have enough time for me to tell you all the cowboys that have been here at Sydney, but they're clear back to the beginning of when they started having the rodeos. Everyone who was anybody who was a cowboy was here at this arena. In the early days, Tech says the cowboys would make themselves at home in Sydney for the entire week. The contestants would stay for the five days because we had used to have two performances, one at 1.30, one at 8 o'clock. And so the contestants would stay for that whole week. And my grandma was one of the ladies, one of the people in the families in Sydney that kept cowboys in their home. What brought professional rodeo competitors to Sydney? Well, Tackett says the prize money was a major lure. They pay an entry fee, and then the committee adds money. So that's called added money to each event. And... The more money that you put in and the more that you have to offer the contestants, they like to enter those rodeos. Along with the competition, there was entertainment. Some of the brightest stars of country music, movies, and television dropped by from the late 1950s to the early 90s. For example, actors Milburn Stone and Ken Curtis, Doc and Festus from Gunsmoke, were among the galaxy of stars entertaining rodeo spectators. The first one was... Dale Robertson, we had Jimmy Dean, Marty Robbins, Crystal Gale. A lot of the Western shows were popular in the 60s, and we had a lot of those people come. Little Joe and Haas from Bonanza. Many people will say, well, the first time I came to the rodeo, I saw Buck Owens, or I saw Crystal Gale, or whoever it might have been. The Sons of the Pioneers were here. But times have changed. Most cowboys no longer stay in Sydney the entire week because of the need to travel to other rodeos. Tackett says increased costs price the rodeo out of luring big-name entertainers. Now, 
Unfortunately, the entertainers are so expensive that it's a little bit beyond the rodeo's budget to be able to have them come and entertain. We're more, I guess now, we're more into the rodeo business rather than the entertainment with music business. Well, today's activities include the annual Sydney Rodeo Parade, followed by tonight's championship session. More information is available on the Sydney Rodeo website. Officials of the KMA Land Animal Shelter are asking for Montgomery County's help on a couple of fronts. Tracy Hill of Animal Alliance Rescue Shelter of Red Oak asked the county's Board of Supervisors Tuesday morning for assistance regarding parking issues. Hill says no parking signs are needed in front of their location at 2047 Fernwood Avenue in Red Oak because of trucks blocking their driveway. We have the truckers that go into Bungie blocking our drive to where we can't even get into our drive. Um, we've had a couple of truckers get out and threaten us. We've had to call the cops. This morning, one of them was there early, parked, and went back in his cab and went to bed. So we were about a half hour late, which doesn't seem like a whole lot unless we have a diabetic animal that needs its insulin. Hill says both Montgomery County Sheriff John Spinagle and Red Oak Mayor Shauna Silvius are working with the organization to ease the parking the issue. The sheriff recommended no parking from the beginning of our parking up to the gate at Bungie because sometimes they pull forward in that area that's probably a semi's length, but their back end blocks our driveway. So that is what he has recommended me come to you guys with. Secondly, he'll ask whether the county is interested in entering into a contract with Animal Alliance for Animal Control Services. Currently, she says animals from rural residents are dropped off without an agreement in place. If there's any kind of contract the county would like to set up with us for holding a couple cages, always empty for them for their dogs. Because um, if they bring us dogs and we don't have any contract with them and we're full, we can't take them. This way it would reserve cages for county dogs because we've already got two in there right now in the county this week that people just bring us. Supervisors Chair Mike Olson says no county ordinance amendment is necessary for the no parking signs. Olson says any animal control contract would fall under the Sheriff's Department's budget. Young KMA land thespians have got a crash course in play production this week. Oh, they're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They're all together ooky. They're the 40 students in grades 4 through 8 participating in the Southwest Iowa Theater Group's Theater Arts Camp. All this week, students have engaged in rigorous rehearsals for this weekend's production of the Adams Family Junior at the Park Playhouse in Shenandoah. Instruction runs the full gamut of theater, including blocking, choreography, and music. Camp director Julie Murren, assisted by Amy Toy and Wendy Widger, put the students through the paces. Murren tells KMA News Adams Family Jr. fits the camper's strengths. I know that I had a lot of talented kids, and I knew that um, our kids that were kind of growing up through the program were ready for some new challenges, and uh, we have a lot of good comedic actors, and I thought this was a good opportunity for them to showcase some of that. In preparing for the upcoming production, students learn there is more to acting than just getting up on stage. Our kids have been working on characterization. A lot of these characters are quite different from their actual personalities. So they've been learning how to become their character in all different ways, not only in the lines that they speak, but also in their body movements, in their voices, in their walk. Cast members like Kaylee Ridge, who plays Pugsley, says only having a week to prepare for the musical was a challenge. I mean, it's only a week, so it is a really hard thing to pull everything together in just a week. But we've all been working hard, and... 
I think that we're going to get this pulled together by the end. From Bella Nordyke, who plays Uncle Fester, the theater camp means fun. My favorite thing is probably getting to know new kids who might be coming into the theater and acting out the characters and just being on stage in general. Murren, meanwhile, says she's had fun watching the regular attendees grow as performers over the years. It's pretty cool to see how kids have grown and changed throughout the years. Some of these kids have been in all five camps with me, and it's kind of fun to see how shy they were when they first came in as kindergartners and how they've really come out of their shell and just become star vehicles. Three more performances. The Adams Family Junior take place today at 2 and 7.30 p.m. and Sunday afternoon at 2. All seats are $10 for reservations. Call the Park Playhouse box office at 712-246-1061. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com, where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.